You are listening to Talking Images, the official podcast of icmforum.com. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Chris, and in this episode, Saul and I are breaking down the career of Hiroshi Teshigahara, one of the most prominent directors of the Japanese New Wave, best remembered for Woman in the Dunes from 1964. But what else has he actually done? What other titles come to mind when you hear the name Teshigahara? Perhaps the face of another? Maybe Pitfall? Possibly Antonio Gaudi, but what else? Woman in the Dunes is generally considered to be one of the greatest films of all time. But uh, over at the ICM forum, the Teshigahara mania is far more intense. In our forum poll of the greatest Japanese films of all time, held back in 2021, it actually ranked well, num- number one, it beat every single film made by Kurosawa, Usu, Mitsuguchi, Miyazaki. I mean, it topped the list and by a decent margin. 49 out of 65 of the participants voted for this film. And the Teshigahara Mania went deeper. The Face of Another came in 28. Pitfall landed on 107th, and uh, his less talked about documentary, Antonio Gaudi, even ended uh, up on 201st. So <laughs> there is a bit of fandom on our forum, to say uh, the least. Though it also helps that all four films were released by the Criterion Collection. But he made four additional feature films that very rarely get talked about. One of them was even nominated for Best Foreign Picture at the Academy Awards. So, why are we not talking more about his uh, later films? How do they compare? And are essentially all of his films suffering due to living in the shadow of Woman in the Dunes? Oh, and why does our forum seem to just love Teshigahara so much? To answer these and more questions, let me bring in my co-host and Teshigahara superfan, Saul, and uh, just uh, ask him in particular, because I think as you learn from the conversation going on, that while I love a couple of Teshigahara films, I'm a bit more cold. But uh, for you, Saul, Teshigahara is essentially one of the greatest directors of all time, correct? Yeah, that's correct. I have um, Tashigahara in my all-time top four directors. And so for me, he's the greatest Japanese director of all time. Oh, wow. So, so do you really just top Kurosawa, Usu, etc.? I did not expect that, actually. That's, uh, <laughs> that's impressive. Yeah, it is impressive. And if any of our listeners have listened to the How We Rank Directors podcast, a lot of it goes into how I rank directors. And just in terms of consistency, I know he's got a very small output, but for for what it's worth for me, he's got six out of eight films that he's done are really, really great. So that consistency for me is just much better than you get from Ozu or Kurosawa or anybody else. I can't think of any other Japanese directors that are just like that consistent throughout their filmography. What is it that uh, speaks to you so much uh, about his films? Probably the number one thing for me, because I'm quite a visual person, 
is just that his films are generally very visually impressive. His early work especially has got a lot of experimental stuff going on where he takes into where he takes into account textures. So a lot of his work's highly textured. You've got different surfaces there, which he just captures in very vivid detail. But also the way that he frames shots tend to be really interesting. And you can sort of get that more and more as you go through his 60s films from Pitfall up to Man Without a Map, where you've got characters that are obscured by things in the foreground. He has a very just a voyeuristic way of capturing images, lots of reflective surfaces. So for me, most of his films are just amazing visual, uh, uh, amazing visual assaults on the senses, and actually audio visual assaults on the senses because his music. It's got the same composer whose name, if I mentioned, I would end up mangling. But I did almost all of his music scores, and they're just terrific, moody, almost sound effect style music scores. So all his films are really great from an audio visual perspective. But I think just even thematically, there's a lot that I like about his work. Personal identity is one of my favorite film themes, and uh, Tashikahara's films are just constantly about that, about identity and how we perceive ourselves in the world and how we perceive our purpose in life. And even as weaker films towards the end of his filmography, you've sort of got that running theme of your purpose in life and how you identify yourself. Now that's really interesting, yeah. Because uh, to be completely honest with you, I, I kind of. Thought of uh, his career as being in at least two parts because I saw his early films, you know, the the quick trio he made back to back of uh, Pitfall, Woman in the Dunes, and uh, The Face of Another, as uh, being unified in this very eerie kind of psychologically uh, unnerving and <laughs> exhausting films of indeed identity, but also just this kind of existentialism i guess where you're not really sure about what your identity is you're not really sure what's going on or why and uh, you know they have these it, it, they're essentially very trippy films that uh, play with your expectations of reality and then in his later films i thought he took a step back from that and i, I still think he does i mean if you go to if you go to Rick Yu, uh, Princess Go, etc., I don't think they have that quality to them, but you are very right that this kind of sense of identity is a really interesting kind of uh, clear thread through all of his films. Yeah, look, I will probably get to it later in the podcast, but I do entirely agree that his last two films are less visual. Rewatching them for the podcast, I picked up on a lot of small things I didn't notice beforehand. So I could still see the Toshikahara trademarks in there. But definitely his first six films versus those last two, they do feel a little bit different. And um, for me, if he didn't have those last two films, because I'm this big consistency person, he'd probably be my number two director of all time after um, Kubrick. Whoa. Yeah, but because I am so big on the consistency there, he's, a, he's number four for me of all time, just because those last two for me, even though they're very interesting, they aren't quite up there with his first six for me quality-wise. Yeah, I think we'll clash quite uh, quite a bit there, because I mean, I, I like Ricky better than some of his, <laughs> his earlier films, and I, he's not. Uh, my favorite Japanese director and he's not even well he, he's definitely among my the, the better Japanese directors for sure but he's not in uh, 
my top 100 favorite directors of all time. So definitely a bit of a divide uh, between us here. And I think a portion of this episode will be Saul trying to... Uh... <laughs> oh yes, Saul reminded me in the chat here now that I told him before this that I have no, no none of his films in my personal top 1000, which... I, I think unsettled him for days and days and days. <laughs> so I think part of this episode will be Saul trying to convince me <laughs> of the power of <laughs> Teshigahara. But uh, le let's uh, go t uh, to uh, the film that shines the brightest in his uh, filmography. I believe this is Saul's favorite of his films as well. It's my favorite of his films. Uh, it's the one that's on the most all-time lists. Uh, and it's the one that uh, topped our forum poll, A Woman in uh, the Dunes. And then we'll uh, talk about the rest of his filmography in chronological order. But I think it makes sense to just talk about this film first, just because of how big and important it is in uh, cinema culture in general. Um, it is a really fascinating film. It, it's, like I said earlier, it's a very psychological film. It's about a man who's just, I suppose you could say, going about his day on vacation. He's looking for bugs in the desert. He gets uh, stranded because the last bus leaves. He seeks refuge uh, at the house, only to discover that he's trapped. He's in a very strange community where all of the homes are dug down into the sand, into these um, essentially very, very large sand holes. Uh, a large part of their lives is about making sure that they don't get drowned by the sand. Uh, he has to climb down this long ladder to get there, and when he wakes up the next day, the ladder is gone. And no matter how much he fights, tries to convince uh, the woman he's staying with to let him go, tries to convince the community above to let him go, they don't, and, he's, and the days pass. All his escape attempts prove to be unsuccessful and he just has to live in this strange world where his perspective of priorities start to shift. It's, like Saul mentioned, it's beautifully shot, it's incredibly visual and uh, in my mind, as, uh, at least, uh, Tashigahara working in black and white creates such an airy atmosphere. He knows how to patiently build tension there's a lot of long, quiet scenes where we simply see uh, work itself, where we see the sand, where we see the effort against it. And we kind of get sucked into a similar complacency as our lead. And that, that might be part of its uh, power as well, just the way it starts to alter our perception of uh, time and place and kind of understand why our lead may be giving in to this strange reality, strange new set of social rules that he's trapped by. What are your opinions on Woman in the Dunes, uh, Saul? First off, Chris, I'd like to say you've done a really good job selling the film and what makes it such an attractive movie. It's a shame it's not in your top 1,000, but what can we do for me? It's not that far away. <laughs> okay, that's good to know. Uh, for me, it's a film that just keeps rising in my estimation. I had it around the 40 mark before I sat down to rewatch, and after the latest rewatch, it's climbed up to my all-time top 15. So it's like one of the 10 or 15 best films I think I've ever seen. So uh, in addition to what Chris has said, I guess the other thing which uh, probably is worth mentioning is that the guy, even though he's employed as a teacher, has got this fascination with studying bugs. Chris did mention that briefly. 
And what's really interesting is the way that Tishikahara films the movie. And it's sort of like we get this guy who ends up being placed under a microscope himself. You've got all these overhead shots looking down at him. There's one point where the villagers crowd around at night and they sort of flash a light down at him when they ask him to make, an, I don't want to say unsavory, but make a request that he's not too happy with. And just the way that it's filmed with tons of close-ups, it sort of feels like he's becoming a bug under a microscope. So he's sort of being trapped, just like he's trapping the insects that he's been studying um, throughout his career or studying throughout his hobby. I keep changing my mind about that. And I guess what really gets to me about the film, and I think you mentioned it also a little bit, Chris, is how we see him sort of adapt and become complacent with it. And just re-watching the film, I just, I just like, it just like sent shivers down my spine as we see how easily he gets trapped into it and how he brushes off all these things, like the woman says, oh, I can do this the next day. And he's like, oh, well, you know, I'm going to be leaving tomorrow and stuff like that. He's brushes it off, doesn't even think about it, doesn't even think about it when they lower him into there and the ladder disappears. Uh, nothing actually occurs to him until it's too late. But what yeah, what really drives the film, though, is how much he changes himself, how much he adapts to his new environment and sort of sees this as maybe his new purpose in life. And it's one of those films, and there are very few films like that that really get to me like that, which is why it really ranks high up for me, where I'm trying to imagine myself in his position. I'm thinking, well, look, I have got my life at the moment, but, you know, there are stresses at work. There are things that I'm not too happy about in my neighbourhood. If I actually got trapped in the dunes and had this as my life, maybe life would actually be easier. All the provisions are cared for, anything they want, they're requested, they get fed. All they have to do is keep shifting the sand around, but he's got constant companionship. He's got no other stresses. And actually, maybe this is a better life for him. He gets really fascinated with a way of capturing water towards the end. And you sort of see the way this person who's so sad on being this teacher in the city suddenly see that or maybe his life can be different a lot of the visuals for me remind me of optical illusions with the way the sand dunes move it's just an amazing effect that that Tishikahara manages to capture and when he's trying to scale out and the walls collapse back down the whole thing is just extremely I guess surreal is the best word that comes to mind but it's sort of like nightmarish also and yeah for me it's just an absolutely amazing crowning achievement it actually wasn't even my favorite to shikahara film until its most recent rewatch but upon rewatch i'm going to say yeah this is definitely his strongest film and one that really resonates with me yeah i can see why and obviously the fact that you're a teacher as well you can kind of uh, <laughs> see the appeal uh, that that must really add to the kind of reality distortion and uh, um, this kind of uh, idea of what are you going to accept how are you going to reframe your mind aspect uh, of uh, your film? I, I guess part of the reason why it's not a top favorite uh, for me is uh, is that it for a portion of the for an early portion of the film, I was a little frustrated by how uh, little he did to get out. He has this moment at the very start where he's really actively trying to get out, but he he, he doesn't go all the way. Uh, and I was being a bit frustrated that, okay, the, he doesn't try to, you know, build a ladder. He doesn't try to tear the house. I mean, he does at one point, but 
it takes him a while to get there. So, so I, I just I, I was watching the film and I was being a bit frustrated by his early uh, reactions and thinking how I would have reacted. Now that might disappear uh, on a rewatch, but uh, at least this this rewatch it was a bit was just a little bit frustrating seeing how he reacted early on. And uh, the the second issue I had with the film and this is some a slight issue I have with most of Teshigahara films is that. While while the shots themselves are beautiful, he has this focus on filming simple acts, and he doesn't always have the same visual tension as, say, Tarkovsky or indeed Kubrick. And you're probably going to disagree with me on that, Saul, but uh, while this film didn't really drag that long, it is around two and a half hours, and I did feel that it was a little bit stretched, and that's an issue I have with a lot of his later films, too, where I feel like the um, it's just a little bit too literally paced. I'm not really drawn into everything I'm seeing. Okay, so to respond to those two points there, uh, yeah, okay, I take your point about making a ladder, but I'm not sure what equipment in the house would exist to be able to make that possible. He does definitely try and scale the wall himself and finds out that the dunes just collapse when he does that. And I thought what he was working on for the most part was trying to convince the villagers, or at least from his point of view, that was the easiest way to get out of there, was to be able to convince them. But then again, there's actually is one point, I don't know if it's spoilerish, because I think it happens around halfway through, where he actually manages to find a way of getting up there. So he actually does manage to eventually get out there briefly, which for me is actually maybe my favourite sequence of the entire film, because he gets up there and it's at night and he can't see anything probably so he's just madly running around in circles and for me you know, that was the most haunting most nightmarish part of the film that you know he's suddenly all up there but he's sort of away from the safety of his abode down below so it's actually scarier above than being down below where he knows where everything is but um look i can understand what you're saying chris and i also understand about the pacing it is not a thriller so i think if you're going into it expecting you know and the edge of your seat thriller where he's constantly you know meeting um adversities as he's trying to escape it's not for me a film about constant escaping it's a film about him repositioning his mind so i can understand and look i did glance on my watch a few times when i was watching it or looked at the um bar to see how much was left of the film so i'm not saying that for me it was a perfectly paced film either but i I understand the pacing of it and i don't think i would have preferred it as a quicker pace i'm not so sure what you mean in terms of the simple acts and i guess i don't want to dwell on the film too much because this podcast is called beyond woman of the dunes but what i find with a lot of toshigahara films with the simple acts is not so much the simple acts but it's the way that he films, and I'm not sure which parts you're talking about in Junes. But in the other films, you've got ones where, as I mentioned before, you've got two characters talking, but they're actually framed through a glass cabinet. So what actually makes that scene come alive is not so much the simple things that they're doing, but the way that Toshigahara places his camera to sort of make us a more active participant in what's going on. So, yeah, I can't really say without more examples or more, more of what, 
more of you elaborating on it. But at the same time, I don't want to clog up the whole podcast about this when the point of the podcast is meant to be about mm. the film is beyond Woman of the Dunes because, yes, this is, yeah, arguably the best Japanese film ever made, but he made seven other movies also. And considering film like directors like Tarkovsky based on eight films is considered to be an absolute master, I, I think Teshigahara should be in the same league. Yeah, very good. I mean, let, let's move back then. And, and I mean, it, it's impressive that uh, Wunder Dunes is actually his second film. So now that we go to, over to the continuity of uh, doing everything on a like, uh, straight chronological path, we're just jumping one film back. <laughs> uh, so a very good start, to say the least. And, uh, and his debut, Pitfall, is uh, no slouch either. It is not the same kind of of lol if you want that but it's also about someone um shall we say without spoiling it too much we will we will have to mention it but without spoiling it too much right now um uh someone um accepting their new way of uh, existence <laughs> all right so as we can tell you that now yeah so uh, this is a bit of a this is a ghost film, essentially. It is about a man who is murdered for reasons he doesn't understand. He comes, he, he just stands there, he looks at his uh, corpse, and he is forced to just wander around and witness uh, reality, witness the woman who set him up, with, follow the man who killed him, uh, follow the person possibly suspected of the murder, and just try to understand what happened to him and the kind of the tenselessness of it just lingers and it's just it's a very cold film i would say it's it's uh, similarly existentialist to the previous where it's just like a, a circle of existential confusion and i don't think i can remember an other film about ghosts that's kind of made in the same way so it's similarly trippy to women and dunes in the face of another it's visually interesting as saw mentioned earlier as well and while it's a bit more bare boned it certainly hits a lot of marks so um to hear back from the super fan then what is it that you love about the uh, pitfall salt so yeah i'll just mention with pitfall even though it's a film that when i've talked to people in the past i've said try and read up as little as possible about it it is a hard one to discuss without mentioning the fact that he gets killed because that really drives most of the film. And I think it happens around 25 minutes in. So it happens well before the halfway mark. So if we go back to our spoiler podcast, I think that's something we mentioned. Happens in the first half. Can it really be considered a spoiler? So, yeah, the, the film for me is about him grappling with his own death and how little he can do about it. So it's actually very similar to Woman of the Dunes in the way that he, Woman of Dunes, he gets trapped down there and he finds he has no way of escaping, get back, get back up there. In Pitfall, he gets murdered and he finds that he actually has absolutely no way of finding out why it happened or finding, or finding any way of getting revenge or getting any sort of vengeance in there. So it's very different to Ghost, the Patrick Swayze film, which will probably be the, I don't want to say it's the best comparison piece, but it's sort of, that's a, another <laughs> film about somebody realizes that he's, that he's dead, but then uses that to try and get revenge. Here, there's no ability to get revenge because he's got no way of interacting with anybody who's alive. So it's a film full of despair there. And there's a, 
amazing quote in the film when he's conversing with another ghost and the other ghost says to him, the dead only upset themselves by worrying about the living. And I guess that's really an interesting quote to consider, not just in terms of alive or dead, but just in terms of anything in life that's being under control. Uh, I mean, you could fret about anything that's going on, about the war in Ukraine, about things that are happening overseas and other tragedies, but often there's not a lot that you yourself can do about it. And yes, you can spend your whole life or a lot of time worrying about it, but it's not going to bring about any resolution. Whereas similarly in Pit 4, he's sort of got that dynamic in there that in as much as he tries to find out what's going on, there's just uh, no way of uh, achieving any sort of resolution. So yeah, it's an incredibly grim film, but very interesting and very interesting in terms of identity as we've said before, about accepting his circumstances and sort of recontextualizing his life, sort of coming to grapple with the fact that he is dead. And there have been some other films that I don't want to spoil, which have sort of similar territory about characters trying to grapple with the fact that they died, but you don't find that out till the end. Whereas here, Toshigahara makes it very clear early on. And just it's amazing the reverse footage shot. I actually rewound it and rewatched it again as soon as it happened. Just amazing how smooth it is when he had the reverse back and he sort of goes from being on the ground and standing back up and then staring at his hands as in the letterbox backdrop and realizing that he's dead. It's just a, an incredible realization in there. But for me, it's uh, very much a trademark to Shigahara film, even beyond that. You've got that amazing, eerie music score by his regular composer. Uh, you've got these great compositions, which really capture the texture. You've got the sort of like the cracks on the ground with snakes slithering over it. You've got the muddy river at the end. And you've got some amazing long-distance shots also as he's walking towards the ghost town where he ultimately gets trapped. And he sounds so happy and sounds so jolly, but just the way the whole thing's shot from a distance and silhouette, you just sort of get this sinking feeling even before he arrives and not everything is going to quite go to plan. Yeah, that's a really beautifully uh, said so. I think I agree on essentially uh, all your points there. And... I think just like you said, this fact that he can't actually engage, like it removes any kind of heroism from the story. It removes any kind of traditional action, if you will, uh, from the story. It's just a circle of observing and seeing rather dark things happening uh, around them, and that's that's very unusual. And it's such a gifted and inspired uh, debut feature. So it's just very impressive to see. I think it's a little rough around the edges. Still, like uh, Seven Dollars, the pacing is a little bit off. I mean, those 25 minutes before uh, he gets killed are very leisurely. But it's such an interesting film. It's just a, a thoroughly good film. It's so easy to recommend. Uh, that stands out in every way. And, you know, when, you, for instance, he watches the son and he sees him, you know, his son finds his father murdered and he doesn't cry. He looks through his pockets, he finds some food and he eats it. And the father is standing from a distance saying, oh, yes, yes, eat it, eat it. it it's those little things like that that are also uh, quite uh, heartbreaking because the father is just happy the son is getting some food. Uh, I think it's also a film that kind of dives into extreme poverty, poverty in a way too, uh, because you just see this kind of mystery that's uh, that exists within it, and it, it's a bit of a social commentary, if you will, in genre trappings, 
that uh, you wouldn't necessarily expect either. I'm really happy you brought up the son, Chris, because for me that's one of the most interesting characters in the film. I mean, obviously the man in white is the most intriguing character. Don't want to spoil that too much, but he's definitely the most you know curious what's going on with him character. But the son for me is really interesting because I remember the first time around I was a bit confused about the son character and why he was in there and why I was sort of getting his perspective. But it's actually really interesting the stuff that actually is going on with the son. I don't know how much we can spoil the film. Uh, are we able to mention the doppelganger? Oh, oh yes, yes, we can mention the doppelganger, sure. Okay, yeah, so uh, the reason why he's murdered, and I'm pretty sure this is before the halfway mark, but if not, you can sue us for spoiling the film. You do actually find out that the reason why he was murdered was because he was mistaken for another man. And that leads to some really interesting scenes later on where the man who was meant to be killed ends up going to the ghost town to investigate why his double was killed and then ends up interacting with the woman who lied about who the killer was and she thinks that he was just pretending to be dead. And then the son sees him and the son's still in the town wandering around and then mistakes him for his dad. And for me, the son's, yeah, just a really interesting character from that point of view in that you're not quite sure what he's like. As Chris mentioned, he gets some food out of his dad's pocket and sort of carries on unfazed. And with the whole police investigation before the double comes back and looks for things, I can't remember exactly, but I'm pretty sure at least the day has passed. So you've got this son's been wandering around town. The woman has a candy store, so I guess he's been helping himself to candy. But he's a very interesting character for me because... He doesn't seem that traumatized and maybe he's not processing it properly, but he seems to sort of be able to carry on. He's just carrying on wandering around the town, uh, maybe in a daze, maybe hoping his dad will return. For me, that that uncertainty of what exactly that's meant to represent really, I guess, knocked it down a notch the first time I saw it. Second time around, didn't mind it that much, but I guess for me it's a thing where when I go back and revisit the film again, I'll be trying to work out the exact role of the son in the narrative. And I think it's worth noting that even the doppelganger doesn't know who would want him killed uh, and why. There's suspicions, but like this kind of uncertainty of why all of this uh, is happening is just kept as a question mark uh, throughout the film and uh, the mysterious killer. We watch him, we observe him, he's uh, extremely dangerous, but we don't know his motivation. We don't know exactly what he wants to achieve. And our lead doesn't know either. And it is this kind of, it's this frustration, this, this inability to do anything about his situation and just lingering in this void, a void we're kind of kept with no matter what happens because, he, again, he cannot communicate with anyone else. It's a very distressing film for that reason. And yeah, just a very strong first outing and do you want to move on to uh, the face of another as well yeah that's fine i'm happy to move on do you want to talk about or introduce the film sure so so the face of another is uh the other film by Teshikahara. I, I think it's a truly great work and it's like we talked about earlier it's a similar portrait of a lack of certainty in the self of our lead who has been uh severely scarred by an accident uh, at work. His face is burnt and he wears uh, bandages at all times. And uh, in meeting with the psychologist, 
he or psychiatrist, he is informed that the, you know, there is a way to make him a mask that can make him live more normally, but there are certain stipulations with this. And, and it, it's a film where once he gets this mask on, he feels like he can do anything. And the psychiatrist is a very strange character in this too, because he seems to be kind of trying to steer him in certain directions and be testing what the, this kind of mask will do and be interested in like this kind of duality of the character and creating a new persona. And all throughout this, there is once again this very unnerving energy. We see all of these prosthetic body parts floating in tanks. There's a lot of unusual visuals. And it's, it's again this kind of spiral of a narrative uh, which just goes increasingly down a rabbit hole of uh, no return. And it, it also has one of my favorite Japanese actors, Tatsuya Nakadai, in the role and with him pretending that, you know, his face is a mask and, you know, the, a mask is, that becomes more and more lived in, which is a, a really big feat, if you will, because you kind of see his face as being more plastic-like. This film that manages to be unnerving on just so many levels as, as it spins this tale, and it's a great testament to both uh, Teshigahara's storytelling abilities, but above all, his uh, sense of atmosphere and uh, what can really get uh, under our skin and kind of tingle these little, little notions uh, in our mind. I am in agreement with you, Chris, about The Face of Another being Teshigahara's second best film. Although for me, that means it's my all-time top 100, whereas for you, it means it's still outside your top 1,000, but that's fine. We'll improve that with repeat review with repeat viewings of the film. Maybe it'll improve for you. Yeah, look, you've done a really great job summarising a lot of what makes the film so great. And I guess what I like so much about it myself is those personal identity questions and you've got a lot of dialogue that's very pointed in this regard. You know, some of the conversations include uh, such comments as getting drunk might well be in a mask of itself and that in love we try to unmask each other. So you sort of get this constantly flowing through the film that we're sort of looking at the face and how much we use the face to determine who a person is. And there's a great part where he walks into his office with the bandages on for the first part early on, and he actually scolds the secretary for telling her off, telling her off and saying that he could have been anybody. Why didn't she stop and check who he is? And she's like, well, I know it was you. And he's like, it could be anybody under the mask. But then he's sort of forgetting about the voice. But a lot of it is about how obsessed he gets with his facial appearance. And a lot of the film's also about how untrusting he is of his wife. I mean, the film almost, for me, has Othello-like turns to it. He's just absolutely obsessed with this idea that his wife is only pretending to be sympathetic towards him, that she doesn't really love him without his face on there, and that she's only saying things to be nice to him. And a lot of it is about him wanting to test out and call out his wife. And... For me, that's maybe what stands out the most about the film, about how obsessed he gets about this. And he agrees to this wacky face-molding plan from the psychiatrist in order to be able to test out this theory that his wife would be unfaithful with somebody who's got a proper face if she had the chance. 
Something which you mentioned, which I also totally agree with also, Chris, is that it's a lot about the confidence that he gets. He actually finds this newfound confidence with having this other person's face on, and he feels he can go out and do different things and be undetected. So he sort of becomes a bit more adventurous with stuff that he does. And then when he finds out that other people have got ways of reading him beyond the face, that really gets to him. Like there's this girl who's possibly mentally handicapped or neurodivergent. It's not quite made clear, but she manages to realise that he's the same person, even though she once sees him with bandages and then later sees him without the bandages on and with somebody else's face on. So it's sort of that playing around in his mind. Am I able to really mask myself? Am I really another person? And sort of that power drive that he gets to it. So, okay, I'm probably rambling on at the moment. So I might flick back to you, Chris. There's a few other things I want to discuss, but we'll see if you bring them up first. Yeah, I think you bring up a lot of interesting uh, points there, uh, Saul. And uh, yeah, it's definitely a focus on what's in the face. I mean, that that could be the central thesis <laughs> to the film, if you will, because uh, he has these conversations with his wife about, you know, like the importance of the face. Uh, for a while when he's burned, he talks about this kind of hypocrisy around uh, or, or these kind of weird mental hangups people have about faces. But uh, once he obviously gets the face himself, he genuinely believes he is a different person, or he genuinely believes that, like you said, that people shouldn't be able to recognize him no matter what. It's this kind of simultaneous thrill, but also, I suppose, personal confusion of identity in that, in that kind of freedom, as his doctor puts it, and, and keeps pushing. And it's essentially, a lot of the film is just seeing him kind of test the waters and also testing the water of his new identity. And one of the most annoying part about the film to me is just the way that the, it's really the doctor that's kind of pushing it throughout because he has this vision of what this mask should do, what kind of impact it should have. And he's just really, really interested in seeing this uh, play out. His sets are really up for even more psychological exhaustion that might otherwise have been uh, been necessary. And uh, it's a bit of a power play between them two that I don't want to spoil too much, but that does, that does lead certain places as the film progresses. Okay, so a couple of other points I'll just mention briefly before asking about something else is that you did mention before the all the body limbs sort of floating around the doctor's office or the way they seem to be with how they're positioned. The art deco, the um, whole way the doctor's surgery is lit up and the room that he's in, and you've sort of got that iconic shot of him going in front of this outline of a face and how his sort of like face gets superimposed on top of that. Yeah, for me, that's all the visuals and it's things that Toshigahara would build up in his other films to come where you sort of got these characters that are obscured by things in the foreground and were sort of, viewing things from a more voyeuristic angle. And there's also a great part where him and his doctor are in a restaurant and the lights just sort of dim at one point as they start getting into a really intense conversation about the mask that we all wear. And just one other point which I do want to make is just the makeup job is amazing. It's hard to believe this film is, oh, I guess we're approaching 60 years old. We'll be 60 years old soon and the makeup is just incredible. I mean, there's a part towards the end where you've sort of got him breaking down and emoting and 
his mask is sort of like half hanging off his face and it just actually really adds to the performance the makeup and sort of the distorted makeup has sort of begun to rip it off but it's not fully off so that for me is sort of one of the most haunting images or actually another haunting image and i did say i was I was going to keep it brief, but another haunting image, and it's the letterbox background again for the film, is him looking out at a construction site and how he's sort of like viewing that being partially constructed and not fully made. And that scene comes as him and his doctor go to meet with the person who's going to donate the face. So for me, that's one of the most interesting scenes because it's him looking at the construction or looking at sort of the middle result rather than thinking about the end result of what will happen once his face actually does get constructed. So I absolutely love the symbolism in there. One of the issues which does seem to get pointed out when people talk about this not being as good as Woman of the Dunes is the fact that you've got these extra scenes in there with an unrelated young woman who's got some facial scarring. And for me, the first time around that I watched the film, that did take me a little bit out of the main story also. But the more that I've rewatched the film, or I've watched it two more times since, I've actually really liked the way that sort of punctuates the story. We've got this contrast in there with a young woman who's also got facial scarring and the different ways that her life takes turns because of that. So I was just wondering on what your take were on those extra scenes involving the unrelated young woman and her facial scarring. Yeah, that, that was, I, I guess, perhaps one of the things that brought the film down a little bit for me, not necessarily down, but it just, it, it felt like they were, she was there as a balancing act and that it was more for kind of broader picture or like this kind of broader sense of what the movie is about, this kind of importance of the face, this kind of importance of facial scarring and how people see you. It, it worked, but yeah, it was just, they could have been cut from the film. I don't think they would have had a big impact uh, or for me personally. Well, if they did cut it from the film, it would make it a lot shorter, which would probably help you with all the pacing issues that you seem to have with the Shigahara. <laughs> I, I, don't, yeah, I don't think this film necessarily has a lot of uh, pacing issues. I think like, the, the way he films them, the way he shoots them, is a, he builds psychological tension, but sometimes it's just a little bit too leisurely for me because I don't think he has that kind of same overtly visual intensity at all times as uh, some of the other directors who do this kind of film or kind of dusting leisurely. But uh, that, that's more of an issue for his later films, to be honest. I think that these three first films in black and white, I mean, they look great. And the visual tension is much higher in these three black and white films than in his uh, later works, in my opinion. Okay, there's just one more thing with the face of another, which I thought I'd bring up. Uh, this is really interesting because going by the letterbox summary of the film, it says a businessman with a disfigured face obtains a lifelike mask from his doctor, but the mask starts altering his personality. Now, that's the summary on letterbox, and I've actually read a few other reviews that go to that same effect and sort of blame the mask itself for his personality changes and I've seen the film three times and I've never read it like that. For me, the film is always about the confidence boost he gets from him being able to walk around with his face not being there or from people not being able to see the real him. It gives him more confidence, like I mentioned before, like getting drunk. So it's that sort of confidence which I think changes him rather than a mask itself. But I was just wondering what your thoughts were on it. Uh, also, I had somebody who liked my letterbox review, and then in the reviews said the film was a lot like Frankenstein, which I 
still can't really get my head around. Although he said the guy was burnt and the uh, monsters is afraid of fire or something like that. So just wondering, Chris, on your takes and whether there are really Frankenstein parallels in there and whether it can be read that the mask actually has a will of its own and it's affecting his personality or whether the letterbox summary needs to be rewritten. That's a good question. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think the mask is any kind of like magical mask that has a mind of its own. But I do think that the application of the mask and, and the kind of these kind of constant implications from his doctor does make him think of the mask as a way of putting on another personality and be another person. And uh, with or without magic, that is kind of the effect that the mask starts to have. Um, Long term, and, and yes, you see, Sol asking me Shatter if I have seconds rated higher than Fates Another, and yes, yes, I do. A second is actually one of, uh, like, I, I consider seconds a masterpiece. So yeah, it's, uh, I do prefer, I do prefer it. it. It's all, it's a similar film though, like you said, and it, it's a very unnerving uh, film as well. I, I think, I mean, perhaps even, yeah, more, even more visceral in some ways, if you will. It's, it's, yeah, it's a, that's, that's a fantastic film. I would be happy to discuss that in another podcast. Uh, I was just going to apologize. I know it's a very out there thing to just throw out, but it is a film that's often mentioned side by side with Face of Another, and they're both from 1966. They've both got that sort of idea of having somebody else's face on. And I do have seconds rated higher up, but both of them are all-time top 50 films for me. So uh, I do like seconds a bit more. It's a little bit more visual. The ending's a little bit more haunting. But for me, both of them are great. So we should do a seconds podcast at some stage. But I'll let you respond to the Frankenstein stuff. Yeah, we'll be up for a second podcast. Yeah, I, I share your thoughts as well. Like both really great films, but seconds is uh, it's just a few steps steps above it and just how unnerving it gets. Um, I, I think I can see more similarities with the Frankenstein novels than the Frankenstein uh, films because in a novel, you know, uh, Fr Frankenstein uh, is this medical student that creates a very intelligent monster who starts to haunt him in certain ways and uh, has this kind of very much a psychological will of its own, uh, as opposed to the movies where Fra the Frankenstein monster is more of this more innocent uh, creature. But uh, yeah, in this in this film, the Doctor character is far, far more sinister and far... Like, it's often said that Frankenstein is a real monster in the Frankenstein story, not the monster himself. But uh, here in this film, there's a good case that, you know, the, the Doctor uh, is uh, a very villainous character. He's certainly out to imbalance our lead and to push him down certain paths and yeah he's a very nefarious character and it's interesting to just watch him and see like to what extent he might succeed and uh, with that it might make sense to move on to a man without a map which is the only Tenshi Kahara film I actually haven't rewatched for this podcast so uh, uh, <laughs> uh, this will be more of a solo soul session so Rewatching Man Without a Map after almost a decade with much lower expectations, I actually found I really, really enjoyed it. It's not one of the Dunes level, it's not face of another level, but it's on for me, it's on a similar level to Pitfall. Uh, the film involves a businessman who mysteriously vanishes without a trace and a private detective who loses his grip on reality while trying to solve the mystery. It does feel very different from the previous three Toshikahara films, mostly I'd say because it's shot in colour. However, Toshikahara does some amazing stuff with colour inversion in there, and 
with different effects and using the color in there. So he uses color very effectively. And it still actually has a great music score by Toro Takemitsu. Okay, I've tried to pronounce it that time. So for me, it still feels like a Toshigahara film, but obviously it feels very different to his fingerprint trilogy, which are all in stark black and white. The film does require some patience, and it is more leisurely paced than the previous three films, so Chris is probably not likely to like it as much, but it's just really interesting the mystery he gets involved in because even though he's been hired to try and find this man who's gone missing, everybody is very uncooperative. They don't want to give him many facts. They have no interest in finding out where the man is. Anybody who he talks to only want to find out why he vanished, uh, which really annoys the detective because he's not there to try and determine the psychology of why this man would walk out of his life. Uh, he's there to try and locate him. And it is quite interesting because it sort of reflects a little bit on the detective's life himself because the detective also walked out on his wife and he even has a part where he goes and he chats to his wife and it's like, well, how different is this to how you walked out of our marriage? What really makes it a Toshigahara film for me is that it builds on what The Face of Another did with the whole obscuring of objects. As I mentioned, objects and faces, as I mentioned before, there's this great shot. We've got two people and they're framed through a glass cabinet so you can't see them properly. You've also got a lot of wine glasses and other alcohol glasses that are put down in front of the detective's face, and suddenly it's like looking through a fun house mirror. You get this whole sort of distorted reflection. There's also an amazing part where he sits down at a table it's at a bar that's totally empty. He's conversing with a waitress, but all that we can see of him is his face reflected down on a table. So we're going to see his uh, distorted reflection in the glass of the table. So a lot of it for me is Tashikahara really playing around with the way that you can frame action and the way that he constantly distorts this character's face, the way that the action isn't quite properly shown. There's a part where he's driving along in his car and we're seeing not him driving in his car, but we're seeing him in the mirrored reflection of these tall glass buildings. So it's like everything's refracted, everything's distorted which really fits in with the mystery that he's trying to solve. And the mystery is, again, it's uh, Tishikahara territory. It's the whole identity crisis that you've got this man who's decided to give up and walk out of his life and find something different. Yeah, very similar to Pitbull, very similar to Woman of the Jews. Uh, the only difference is at this time you've got somebody investigating that, but I guess at the same time also getting a bit lost in the process and things really get into his mental headspace towards the end to the point where it gets a little bit surreal. And, yeah, I don't know if there's really much more I can say beyond that other than I would highly recommend checking it out, Chris, because I had this doubt as a mild disappointment because at the time that I'd watched it, I'd actually already seen the other Tishikahara films and managed to, I was on holiday in Hong Kong and managed to get his last two films on DVD. So it was just this one because I think it was music rights or how many music rights? Oh, no, I think it was translation rights. There was some, like, it, was, it got hold up for release because there was some 
rights issue with the translation of the subtitles, so it couldn't get released with English subtitles. So this was the last Tishigahara film that I saw. He made it in between Face of Another and Summer Soldier, so my expectations were sky high, so I'm not surprised I was disappointed. But re-watching it recently, I was just like, wow, I can't believe how much I dismissed this at the time because, yes, it feels different because it's a colour for Shigahara film, but in every other way, it's what he does best. Yeah, that's a really good uh, cell phone. I might end up rewatching it at some point. I, is it restored now, by the way? Because the version I saw, I think, was like a relatively weak DVD uh, version. Uh, um, okay, I'm probably not the best person to ask about that. We'll see if the <laughs> image quality podcast gets released before this one does. But I'm not... I'm not too big on image quality, so I think mm. I acceptable quality, but acceptable for me is pretty much 360 or above because I was watching it on my iPad. So I don't know. It's not it's not a 4K restoration, so Tom's never going to see it. But um, <laughs> it might have been 720. I, I can't. I can't. I just can't remember offhand. All right, all right. I, I don't mind 720. Uh... I think that if there's ever a proper Blu-ray restoration, I might give it a rewatch just because a lot of the tension that Hashigahara manages to create with his visuals are just from how they are composed. And when there's, when that uh, quality is a bit lower, some of the power is probably lost. Uh, I, I don't actually remember that much from The Man Without uh, a Map. Uh, I thought it was a decent film. Uh, I think I... I think it's like a lot of Hashigahara films. I think it started off quite well, but I slowly started to lose a bit of interest, which is something I'll say about a lot of the films coming up <laughs> as well. That's the issue I have with most of his uh, color films, uh, sadly. But uh, but no, I mean, it, it was well shot. Uh, it played into a lot of his uh, ideas of uh, playing with the self. I, I thought it was an interesting, perfectly decent film. But uh, yeah, for me, it's one of his, his weakest. And let's see if I change my mind uh, on a rewatch. But uh, with that, it might make sense to go on to a film I really, really like. Uh, and I think it's, I, I might actually like about as much as, as Soul, as Summer Soldier, which is one of those very, very rare uh, Japanese films that is largely in English with an American lead. It follows a soldier uh, on leave from the Vietnam War who decides to desert because he doesn't want to go back to the fighting. He has. Uh, taken up uh, with a woman who's hiding him and uh, he gets introduced to an anti-military uh, organization that starts to hide him. Um, but he's by no means uh, an angel. He's a very off-putting character in many ways. And the film kind of just follows his kind of journey of ev trying to evade uh, captivity, the reaction from the Japanese people helping him. And also, uh, I suppose you could say somewhat, perhaps, random interviews with soldiers. It's this kind of almost documentary feel that kind of sets the tone and tension for the film as we follow him. It's, it's a very different film, I would say, from most of Tashikara's other work. It still plays with the sense of self and who he is. Uh, as he kind of tries to deny that he is a deserter and he kind of... Uh, starts to, I suppose you could say, invent new, a new character for himself or the way he's presenting himself in the way he really is. Um, and it's a very interesting film for that. It's also just a very interesting film for all the things mentioned above. The focus on the US military in Japan, the, the focus uh, uh, against uh, the Vietnam War, uh, this kind of 
rather literally pace again of just this man existing and trying to escape. That there's a lot of things going on here. That there's a lot of things to read into the film. There's a lot of things to you know dive into. So I would love to hear uh, your thoughts on it, Saul. So, Summer Soldiers is my least favourite of Toshikahara's first six films, but I do think it is a generally great film. The key for me in processing it is really thinking about the fact that 12 years elapsed between Summer Soldiers and the Goldie documentary that he did in the 80s. So for me, when I was re-watching it, I was really thinking about it as a pre-hiatus film, and that made it incredibly interesting because of what the protagonist is like in Summer Soldiers. He's a war deserter, and when he's trying to make it around himself in the world, but everybody's still trying to pigeonhole him. He's trying to get some help from these Japanese people who are sympathetic to war deserters, but only if they're ideological. And his girlfriend's actually with him, and she's asking, well, he hates war, isn't that enough? And they're like, no, he needs to be ideological. He needs to actually not just be deserting, but it needs to be, you know, for reason, he needs to be anti-military. And I guess for me, I see it about a film about somebody trying to escape being pigeonholed, and I'm wondering if maybe Toshikahara felt a little bit like that at the time. He sort of made these four masterpieces in the 1960s that are very visually intense, got these very, I got this uh, common music score, got these common themes in terms of identity, and, and maybe as a filmmaker, Toshikahara at this point, maybe he wanted to branch out. I don't know that much because I haven't read that much about him. Not as much has been written about Toshikahara compared to the other Japanese masters of his time. But for me, it was very interesting as a pre-iatus piece. And something that Chris mentioned is that the main guy isn't very likable. And I would agree with that. Uh, But I find that really interesting because you've sort of got those shots earlier on where he's hiding in the shadows he's cowering when somebody knocks on his girlfriend's door because he doesn't know if it's the police and it's going to be dragged away but as the film progresses and the police actually visit his girlfriend's place and don't catch him he actually grows very cocky and arrogant and you sort of got that progression there from being this timid and you know nervous deserted and this person going oh well you know i can do what i want with the world and he does do some really awful things uh, trying to uh, blackmail a couple who are giving them shelter for money, as well like demanding to have this money to be able to take out um, a woman. And it's just sort of what he's doing with his life is not really that honourable. So it's a very interesting position to have. You've sort of got this character who's deserted, but it's not it's not actually ideological. It's not so much that he hates or even though that's what he's saying, it's just he doesn't want to be doing that with his life. He's a young man. He wants to be out. I guess he wants to be a romantic woman. He wants to be having a good time. And he's trying to get out of that pigeonholing. So for me, as a Toshigahara film, yeah, look, I was trying to look for bits and pieces that do seem like what I'm used to seeing from him. That pile hiding in the shadows at the beginning was a lot like that. They've got some driving scenes and some shots at night that remind me a little bit of Man Without a Map, especially with the way that Toshigahara uses colour but it does feel less like a signature piece to me than his first four films and 
his sixth film that we're discussing afterwards. So that for me is what holds it back a little bit, but I do think it is a genuinely great film. Yeah, so you might like the film slightly more than me then because, yeah, it, it's my third or fourth favorite Ashikahara. It's about the same place as uh, Pitfall for me. I really enjoyed the atmosphere it built up. I actually really loved the first 20 to 30 minutes where you kind of have his very damaged relationship with his lover. You're kind of uh, looking at, okay, how genuine is he in this? And you find out later that, okay, it's probably not <laughs> that genuine, uh, let's say. I, I did think that once, you know, it, it's kind of about him on the run and it's just lots of shots of him uh, just walking about, evading capture, having a, a character gallery that's not necessarily that exciting. I thought it kind of lost some st lost some steam there, though there is this one scene, which I don't want to spoil too much about, about the host family that's brought him in and uh, how he engages with him and just expects things from them and just starts to become rather abusive that is really, uh, really strong as well. I, I just think, I think it's a very good film. I think that <laughs> it, it has a very balanced and nuanced and interesting approach. It's plays into similar, uh, like kind of the psychologically draining idea of just are we sympathetic with this character or not? Are we sympathetic about his overall situation? How do you feel about soldiers trying to escape Vietnam? It, like, like that, like you mentioned, so like the character, like asking him, like, is that enough that he doesn't want to fight? Like, should we help anyone who doesn't want to kill people? Or like, should he have any kind of, you know, moral reason for doing so? And like, I guess it's a question throughout the film is like, why is he uh, deserting? And yeah, it's just, like I said earlier, just so many things going on in the film and in this person's mind. Uh, and the way that Ashigahara kind of explores it uh, makes it a very fascinating and unusual portrayal. The only other thing which I thought I'd mention is the parts that you referred to earlier on, Chris, we've got these cutaways to other soldiers talking to the camera, sort of in documentary style. That, for me, I actually really liked the second time around. The first time around, it was a little bit jarring for me. But for me, it's very similar to the cutaways to the young woman with the scarred face in the face of another. So you've sort of got this parallel plot line or sort of these cutaway scenes, but they add to the texture of it because you get this soldier giving his reasonings for how he feels about the war. And it helps us to sort of try and fill in the blanks or maybe not fill in the blanks or wonder whether the protagonist actually does fit into those blanks at all. But, yeah, for me, there's, there's a lot going on there. It's not an all-time Toshikahara favourite, but as you said, Chris, I probably, I guess maybe because I'm looking in the context of his entire career as a pre-hiatus film, I possibly did like it slightly more than you. And with that, we might, I might move to the film that we have the biggest uh, gulf between us on, which is uh, Antonio Gaudi, a documentary about the Catalan architect uh, by the same name. And it, it's a really fascinating and bold, uh, almost experimental documentary, as uh, there's almost no dialogue or interviews in it. I think the first dialogue from any kind of interviews comes in about 30 minutes in and there's probably less than two three minutes of dialogue throughout almost all of the film is just shots of the buildings and parks that Gaudi designed and it's 
visually beautiful and interesting. Tenshikahara managed to do several very nice compositions. The way he shoots through it has this kind of curiosity about it of how this looks, because obviously for those who are remotely familiar with him, uh, and even those who aren't and just watch this, uh, Gaudi has a very uh, unusual way of approaching design and his the buildings does not look traditional, let's say. And yeah, it's just he, Tenshikahara just trusts that the buildings and the, the, the designs speak for themselves. Uh, I was overall sadly not that impressed, but I know you are. So I'm going to let you talk a bit about this film first, and then I'll <laughs> come into my negativity uh, later on. So I think Antonio Gaudi is a film that's going to disappoint anybody going into it, hoping to find out more about Gaudi. Like you mentioned, Chris, there are a few parts in there quite late into the film where there's a little bit of dialogue and you've got a part where a few academics sit around and discuss his work. And for me, those are the weakest parts of the film. The parts of the film that really work for me are the ones where Tushikahara lets the images do the talking. And he's just got this absolutely amazing way of photographing all these structures and all these paintings. You see all these paintings and they're zoomed in, all these drawings and they're zoomed in and it starts in a close-up and then the camera pans up or it pans down or it gradually zooms out to reveal more detail. And it's just a very deliberate way. Everything for me felt very deliberate with the way that Shikahara was filming it. You've got all of these shots that are looking around the architecture and it's very voyeuristic. It's not just straight shots. The camera's often moving and often showing us things from angles that you wouldn't really look at. It's almost like a childlike wonder looking up at some of these structures in place. And some of the structures are just remarkable. I mean, Toshigahara made his name based on his treatment of surfaces and structures. And you've got that going through again. I mean, you can see how much he loves Gaudi's work because of how textured it is, because of all the unusual structures. And for me, it really sits alongside, maybe not Summer Soldiers, but his first four, four films really well as a sort of look at how the world can be seen a little bit differently. The film also has a very characteristically disquieting music score from Taro uh, Takamitsu, if I pronounce that correctly. So for me, it's not a narrative film, so it does feel very different, I guess, to the first four Toshikahara films. But it does really sit alongside there for me. It's one of those films where you really feel that you get this love of texture and a love of constructions that Toshikahara really likes. And also his framing is really interesting. I mean, there are some seemingly random shots of people dancing around bonfires and of people, I think, dancing in the street and sitting around bonfires. But just the way that he films and the way that he frames, and you sort of like just see the feet or you just see the heads, it still feels that Tachigahara is... Anyway, the only other comment that I'll probably make over there is that you do see human beings passing through us. It's not just empty areas. And that, again, made me think about something identity stuff and how you relate to yourself in the world. And you sort of see these, I don't want to say normal-looking, but average-looking people against these amazing structures. And, again, it sort of puts into context what the world can sometimes look like. So maybe I'm running a little bit, but for me, it really spoke to me as a Shigahara film. 
and I really loved how unusual it was in presentation. Yeah, that, that's a uh, really good, good sell. So I wish I was appreciating the film the, the same way you did. And I think you're very, very right that you can kind of see just how much he loves this architect. He, he's drawn in by his style. Uh, for me, it, it really just felt like, yes, you can feel that he loves uh, Gaudi's style. You can you kind of get almost a personality from a lot of these uh, buildings, which is really interesting to see. But when it's just sh shot this way, I didn't, I didn't feel like it had the same kind of symphonic feel that many City Symphony films have, for instance. I don't think the so uh, he did enough with the soundscape to make it more grand. I, I, I think he just let the images speak for themselves. And it just felt a little bit flat to me, to be honest, over, over time. It, it felt a bit like, I mean, I went back and I found my original review from when I saw it about a decade ago. Uh, and it was exactly the same feeling I have on this rewatch, which is that it kind of feels like really talented, well-executed uh, vacation footage, which is putting it very crassly because I do think it's a well very well-made film. But uh, it, I just did not get the dr proper drive from it. And I was also really rather frustrated by the interviews if, if you can call them that, like 30 minutes in, there's about 10, 20 seconds of someone just adding a quick note. And it just felt really out of place. Like once he's going for this kind of completely, like almost non-interview style, where it just lets the building speak for themselves. I would rather he just went for that or incorporated something a bit closer to a traditional documentary because th those scenes did not work that well for me. That, that's entirely fine, Chris, and I do agree about the interview sections or parts where people are talking. That, for me, were the weakest parts of the film, and that's why it's like on a rung below Map Man Without a Map and Pitfall. For me, that's why it's only my fifth favourite and not maybe a top three favourite film. But, I mean, I, I get what you're saying. I mean, I'm thinking about the opening of Manhattan when you've got all that rising Gershwin music over all the buildings of Manhattan. I'm thinking, well, yes, the film could have been like that, but I do like what Toshigahara opted for. And you do have those bursts of Takamitsu music heard, and it's just very, very rustic. I mean, I think what I wrote in my review about it is that you sort of feel like a trespasser as you're wandering through these almost alien-looking constructions. And it's only every so often when you see somebody dancing, you see somebody walking outside a building, you actually remember that this is actually a real structure as part of the real world. And just really fits into me with all the uh, films that Tashigara has done about different environments, unusual and alien environments, everything from the ghost town and pitfall to the area downside the dunes and woman of the dunes to the doctor's office in face of another for me it was it was enough of a Tishigahara film that i was able to appreciate it at least and you're clearly not alone uh, like i said it ended up on our top 250 japanese films back in uh, 2021 and uh, yeah i think uh, it has a lot of fans so if anything i'm a bit of an outlier but uh, do you have anything else to add on antonio about this all uh, I don't think so. I mean, I pretty much summed it up. I mean, it's not a narrative film. You're not going to get a story in there which is quite as juicy as the one in Woman of the Dunes or Face of Another. But as a look at Shigahara bringing his trademark style to 
a non-narrative film. I think for anybody who's enjoyed his first five films, it's something that I would recommend. Although based on what Chris has said, I would recommend maybe with some caution. Yeah, that, that might be that might be good to say. I recommend it with some caution because yeah, I, I, clearly it's a film that's beloved by many, but it might also be a specific niche of people. So as more people seek out Antonio uh, Gaudi, let's see how how uh, the opinions uh, stack up. But overall, yeah, it's clearly a respected film. Uh, and this actually brings us up to Tashigahara's last two films, which is a duology uh, of. Rikyu, which is the film I mentioned earlier, was nominated for uh, Best uh, Japanese Films at the, at the Japanese version of the Academy Awards. And Princess Ku, uh, its uh, sequel. And we can talk about Rikyu first, we can talk about them separately, be- because I know that uh, both Sol and I have a particularly negative reaction <laughs> to, to, to the last of these two. But uh, at least for me, Rikyu is a pretty good film. It's well acted. It centers on intriguing matters of the court, and it's it's an interesting film because our lead, Riku, is the tea master, and we see the story of how important the tea ceremony is within uh, this kind of feudal society of Japan, within samurai culture, within uh, politics, even geopolitics, uh, with the Portuguese traders, and just how this extremely important position and these ceremonies are used. Uh, one of the most interesting things in this is how uh, Teshikohara in his this kind of leisurely uh, focus on specific actions that I mentioned earlier, shoots these tea ceremonies uh, with very little dialogue, capturing the essence of them, capturing the atmosphere, simply showing people pour the tea. Uh, and as you know, the film continues, building more and more extravagant uh, uh, kind of places to have tea. It, it's a very serene film. It doesn't have this kind of more trippy elements as his earlier works. Uh, it's more down-to-earth, perhaps more conventional in some ways, but it still has uh, the same kind of Teshigahara focus of this kind of stream of consciousness as a character is, uncer- like Sol mentioned earlier, uh, a character is kind of uncertain about their identity and their place in the world and what they should do. And there's a lot of interesting uh, personal dynamics involved as our lead kind of has to navigate the, his uh, personal beliefs of what the tea ceremony should represent and uh, the whims of his lord. So we've reached the part of the podcast where we're talking about the two Tishigahara films that I'm not too big on. I mean, I mean, Chris has done a pretty good job selling the worthwhile points about Rikyu. Uh, it's a decent enough film. And I, I actually, look, I do think it's a good film. But for me, it feels very restrained as a Tishigahara film, especially considering that only five years earlier he did the very voyeuristic Antonio Gaudi documentary. There are Tashigahara touches in there. You've got these characters who are framed looking through translucent screens. You've got some mirror reflection distortion. But most of the film seems to be concentrated on the story itself. And the story itself is not uninteresting. You've got this tea master. You've got this warlord. You've got this warlord who really, really respects this tea master, even though he's like, a lower class citizen, he really respects him because he's a master of the tea making craft and he can't get over the fact that the tea master 
doesn't believe that his plans of invading China, his war warmongering plans are worthwhile. And that really gets him in the bind that the team master can't agree with him, which really sets off a lot of the drama. So that in itself is kind of interesting. He's sort of got the relationship between the two men. Probably the most interesting part for me of the film, though, is there's this gigantic globe of the world, which you see the warlord playing with. And he's sort of like playing with it and throwing it up in the air. And that just whenever I see it, oh, I've only seen the film twice, but both times that I saw the film, it really brought to mind for me uh, Jackie Oakey in The Great Dictator throwing the a globe of the world up in the air as he's thinking about his plans for invading uh, Europe. And I guess for me, that, that illusion sort of really uh, carries force through that he's got these childish, whimsical plans for invading the world that might not really be all that sensible. And you just want to take advice on whether they really are sensible or not. So look, as a narrative, there's quite a bit in there, but I'll probably go to a Chris criticism and just say that for me, it did drag out. It's a two and a half hour film. And yes, one of the dunes is also two hours, but one of the dunes passes by in a flash or not really a flash, but it, it passes by quite swiftly, whereas Rick Yu, everything's really dragged out. I guess because Teshikahara really wants us to get invested in the story. But for me, the story wasn't quite as gripping as the personal identity studies that he made his name with. So, yeah, it's a decent film, but it's not a film uh, that I would really highly recommend. I did actually have it a bit high rated up the first time I saw it. But the first time I saw it, you know, I was so excited to see it. You know, I'd got this rare dvd of it from hong kong because it hadn't been released anywhere in the western world i was just looking going oh i can see that I can see that it looks like it looks like a tishikahara film here there and there and yes there are parts like that where you can see his trademarks in there but the overall narrative for me just isn't as strong as the films that he really made his name with yeah i'll agree with that and i'll i'll side with your uh, criticism as well um, it, it does drag out and that is the, the real reason why I don't I don't love this film uh, I just like it uh, I think it has really strong performances I think the uh, drama within it is good it had it had a lot of potential to step up but uh, the way Teshigahara kind of shoots it is like it, it lacks a little bit of tension it, like the, it lacks the kind of tension that he was able to add to in particular his three first films and uh, I, I suppose this is partially because it doesn't have this striking black and white. It's still a very beautifully made film, but it doesn't have this kind of black and white intensity of its first three. And it, like you saw mentioned also, it doesn't kind of have these kind of more psychological elements to it. And, and that's obviously should be fine. A director should be able to branch out and do other types of stories. Uh, I, I do think that if uh, a different director had taken Rikyu's material, they could have made a more visually intense film. Which is not to knock Tashikari, did a good job, it's a good film, very well acted, very well shot, it's just not one of his very best. And if you move on to, you know, his last film, Princess Go, I think that, that, that's your least favourite in total, right, Sol? Yeah, look, I, I did like Princess Go a little bit more this time, but I would agree that it's his weakest by far. I don't want to spoil the events of uh, Ricky, uh, Ricky, but... Uh... This film essentially takes up more or less just as uh, the first film ended. We're introduced to new lead characters 
And I, I think I had a similar reaction to Riku, where I at first was very engaged by it because one of my, like I, Tatsuya Nakadai is back in the Teshigahara film. He's very strong in this film, and uh, a lot of the early scenes are focused on him and setting up his character, and that part uh, was really interesting to me. It was his dynamics with the Lord, and there's, I felt there was a lot of tension. It's once again a very well shot film, but then, at least to me, the film started being too sprawling. It skips a, a lot of time. Uh, we're introduced to the Princess Go, our lead. Uh, there's multiple other characters in the mix. It's still kind of continuing the story of Rikyo in a few ways, uh, so th- which kind of feels like there's this little small thing that's just added across the narrative. Uh, as a whole, I just felt that it, it was a bit too thin. I thought it could have, I thought it could have uh, been far more tense. I thought the characters could have been stronger. I, I thought they spent too little time with each of them. It was just lacking a little bit of focus. And the Princess Go character just is not that exciting. And she's in two different iterations as well. You have both, her both as this kind of uh, very spunky, carefree, almost. Like at one point, almost action hero, <laughs> and then you have her more as this more very muted leader years later. And a lot could have been done by that, but I don't tell you, I don't think that Shikahara really managed to balance it out. Well, it's still a decent film, not a, a terrible way to go out, but it doesn't really compare well to his uh, previous efforts. I think you've done a pretty good job there, Chris, with summing up Princess Go. I would say, yeah, as a narrative for me, it did feel a little bit weak. For a film that's named after, it's actually not a lot of it's about her. A lot of it's about characters reconciling the events of the previous film, which for me, I guess, felt like a bit of a misstep because the film doesn't really feel of its own product. It felt very indebted to me, to the previous movie. And yes, that sometimes happens with sequels, but in this case, it just felt that the actual narrative itself about Princess Go didn't really take off until quite a bit in there. What you've mentioned about seeing the two different iterations of her is very true. We are seeing her as this spunky young girl with this like crazy hairstyle and then we see her later on as very complacent and I think the progression in there is really interesting. It's almost the opposite of Summer Soldiers, we've got this character is very timid and scared, going to be very out there, I don't care sort of attitude, and with the Princess Go character, it's the reverse of that, but there isn't the gradual progression of Summer Soldiers, because like you said, Chris, it skips months and years at a time, so the narrative cohesion just really isn't there. But what I did write about in my review of the film when I rewatched it is you don't really watch Tishigahara films for the story. I mean, yeah, I mean, yes, for some of the ideas with personal identity, yes, but mainly uh, I watch a Tishigahara movie for the visuals and for the atmosphere that he builds out. And the visuals are there. I mean, there's a really striking, I don't know if it's meant to be a tunnel, but there's like this walkway that's made out of straw and you see these two male characters walking through it and they're just like, semi-obscured it's as they're walking through just seeing bits and pieces of them which is a really cool image and we get a another version of that later on with our princess go going through it you sort of just see bits and pieces of sunlight streaming down on her face and that for me is a great image there's also characters who are obscured by tall grass there's some slow rotating shots 
there's some flames and snow and it's really interesting to see what Shigahara does with those weather things compared to Rikyu, which was mainly set indoors. He really has some interesting shots of fire and shots in the snow and you also see some close-ups of Rob dropping against the ground. So his fascination with services and textures is really there. Just the narrative itself isn't there. I, the, the themes are interesting. They're not really classic to Shigahara themes as much, but you've got some ideas there about illness. I mean, there's a interesting quote there. When ill people speak nonsense, they get this idea that uh, people aren't making good choices because illness is interfering with the judgment. You've also got some ideas of the old generation being replaced or forced out, which does make the film a rather fitting swan song. So I guess for me, like I saw Summer Soldiers as a pre-hiatus piece, as a swan song piece, it's not a bad way for Tashikahara to go out. But in terms of mounting a haunting narrative and in terms of a film which is a real audio visual song on the senses it doesn't really make the mark for me which unfortunately even though i liked it more this time around does make it a disappointing end to a really illustrious career yeah well but i don't think i have too much uh, to add to that to be honest i mean personally i would have preferred it if tashigara had stayed a little bit closer to his roots and maybe gone out with something a bit more trippy and uh, and visual but people change people age people get different interests and i think the fact that he went out with his duology which has a lot of qualities both films are very well acted very well shot he was able to tap into something else and uh, uh, Ricky Wu in particular, I think, has a decent audience. Uh, I mean, I think that in Japan it was quite successful. Like I mentioned, it was nominated for the Japanese Academy Awards. Um, I, I, I think that that's a film that many of our listeners might enjoy even more than Solo myself. And I think that uh, even with Princess Go, which both of us had a somewhat negative reaction to, I think that's a film that many might also like more than us. So, yeah, definitely not a bad way to go out though he didn't exactly go out uh, with a bang not sure if we can end this episode with a bang either so um, do you have anything <laughs> any final words uh, you, you want to say the only other thing i might mention is that i've always felt with Tashigahara, although maybe less so these days with internet streaming and people uploading things to archive.com that's actually where i saw uh, the man without a map availability for me or marketing of his films was something which I was always wondering about when I was first getting into his movies, I guess, uh, going back around 15 years ago. I mean, the first um, Tashikahara film I saw was War of the Dunes because it's the first one that everybody sees because it's the most heavily promoted. And it wasn't until I saw Face of Another and that I was blown away by it that I went back and I rewatched really Warner of the Dunes and I sought out Pitfall and I sought out as many films of his that I could see. Tashikahara feels like a director that hasn't quite been as praised as much as he could have been, I guess due to availability issues. It didn't help that there were subtitle rights with the translation for Man Without a Map. It doesn't help that Summer Soldiers is still very hard to find out. But for me, I did make the Tarkovsky comparison early on. He's a director with similarly very small output. But even though I'm not really big on Shigahara's last two films, he, he directed quality films throughout a very small but very impressive career. So 
He's a director who I would like to see reappraised in the future. I don't know that's going to happen, but I think for anybody who is impressed with Wound of the Dunes and Face of Another, yes, none of his other films are anywhere near as good as those, but they've all got interesting qualities to them, and I would recommend seeking them out. So yeah, I mean, I completely agree. I think that Woman in the Dunes and Face of Another are the two standouts for him. Both are great films. If you have seen one and not the other, uh, please seek it out. But yes, he has made many more very good films. Pitfall is definitely one you should seek out. Um, Summer Soldier for me. And obviously Saul will push uh, Man Without the Map and Antonio Gaudi and... Yeah, I mean, Antonio Cavalli is a film that people love. I, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna try to hold it back. If our description stuff it sound good to you, you should definitely seek it out. And uh, <laughs> to give a personal plug, feel free to seek out any of our other episodes as well. We have quite a big library diving into various directors, films, and general topics. <laughs> so until next time, thank you so much for listening. And uh, see you again soon. You have been listening to Talking Images, the official podcast of ICMForum.com.